right, everybody. It's Tuesday night at 6 p.m. You know what that means. It's time for GradCast here on CHRW 94.9. I am your host today, Tristan Johnson, and I'm here today with Yimin Chen. Hey, Tristan, what's up? And behind on the desk, we have Sabrina Hope running the faders. Uh, hello, everyone. <laughs> I had to turn my mic on first. <laughs> And this is GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Today, we are joined by a wonderful, interesting guest, but I have some, so much interesting stuff. So we have another group, uh, another student coming in from anthropology, which is always a recipe for an exciting episode. And this is episode 100 of GradCast. Yay! Yay! Yay. So uh, for our 100th guest, let's talk to Hannah McGregor. She is a master's student in her second year here at uh, the Department of Anthropology. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. <laughs> so uh, to get a little bit started, you work with primarily the uh, local Oneida community? Yes. So um, I actually work on indigenous language revitalization in Canada and concepts of reconciliation. Um, and the community that I did my field work with is the Oneida Nation of the Thames. And it's a small community of about uh, f- uh, 5,000 people, maybe 3,000 people um, on the territory, and then 2,000 who are sort of in the urban population. Um, and I did my field work with them and sort of looked at what they were doing, what their language efforts were. And yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the Oneida people. Um, so the group that came in from Canada, their their traditional home territory is actually in New York and um, Wisconsin. So in about 1840, uh, there was a small group of Oneida people, about 300, that actually came up to Canada and bought the land that they currently occupy now. So it's actually technically not a reserve necessarily because it's not crown land, uh, but they own their own land and they're on their own in independent territory. And so what would be the status of the Oneida language today? Um, It's like all indigenous languages in Canada. It's considered critically endangered um, in the Americas, so Canada and in the United States specifically. There are 60 speakers left. Um, Community estimates range anywhere between 40 and 60, and they're all over the age of 65. And there are no Oneida speakers left in in their sister territories in New York and Wisconsin. So critically endangered. It's not good. So when you say speakers here, are you talking about like fluent speakers um, of the language? Yes. So these, um, their stories may differ, but their fluent speakers are typically um, people who learned Oneida as their first language when they were born and grew up and were socialized in the language and either maintained it or came back to it after maybe going to residential school and not being permitted to speak and then still in their community and their territory still being able to speak the language. Oh, cool. So you're, you're saying what you're working with is uh, this process of revitalization of the language. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit about sort of what that entails, what that means? And do you speak any Oneida? <laughs> Have you studied it at all? Um, I studied it a little bit. I took an Oneida grammar class that was actually offered out of, um, it, it's a course at Western that you could take, and I took it in the summer. Um, but the process of revitalization, when a language uh, dies or goes to sleep, and your terminology depends on how you want to view the language, um, but when that happens, it usually means that nobody's learning it anymore. It's the kids that aren't being taught it, and in this case, kids are being socialized in English as opposed to Oneida. Um, and when the older popula- when the older population that still speaks um, dies, you know, as they do, um, 
that's when you stop speaking it. And in Canada, you have the added history and pressure of colonization and residential schools that really had a significant impact on Indigenous languages. So it's really interesting. Like, I don't think we've had anybody come on GradCast and tell us about um, languages as if they're they're like species, almost. Like, yeah. Like you said, critically endangered. Um, so what kind of efforts can you make? Like, uh, my mind immensely goes to one of my friends who is a teacher at a... Uh, Mohawk Immersion School over in Kahnawake in Quebec. Mm. So what kind of measures uh, have been taken to bring languages back? Um, it's The revitalization process is very unique and individual, and it depends on both the status of the language and the resources that the community has. And those resources include, you know, fiscal resources, like the money that they have to uh, pour into programs, but also the actual language resources that they have, which includes fluent speakers, but also curriculum and education uh, materials in the language. So revitalization efforts involve, you know, either documentation, if there is no writing system, for example, maybe you need to create a writing system. Maybe this is only an oral language. Um, or maybe you have some resources and materials um, that you can use to start building um, building more language resources to be able to teach the language formally in a school, for example. Um, and really what you want to do depends on the resources that you have available to you and what kinds of things you can access. So then uh, let's hear about uh, the kind of research that goes into this then. So what was the status of the United language and what kind of quirks does it have and what kind of things have to be done to, to bring it back? Um, so there's actually a pretty long history um, in the community itself of attempts at teaching the language, especially formally. They have a language center in the territory. Um, but what I've noticed, especially with my research, is that there's a really, really big focus on reading and writing as opposed to speaking. And so because there's this huge focus on docu documents and um, having all this written material, creating speakers in this community is incredibly hard um, because they the way that they understand the language and the resources that they need isn't quite there with the speaking. And, you know, the easiest way to learn how to speak is to talk to people. And when you maybe have a social system that doesn't allow you to integrate your youth with your elders as often, because that's not the way that Canada, like, you know, Euro-Canadian Canada sets up its education system, um, you lose, there's a generational loss there as well. So th th that's one of the quirks that I've noticed with Oneida, but they have a lot of linguistic resources, which is really good. You've spoken a little bit about uh, socialization through school. Mm -hmm. You also talked about a lot of loss through the residential school system. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about how schools have damaged um, Indigenous mm -hmm. languages? Yeah, so in general, mainstream educational schooling uh, encourages a shift to English because in order to function in a mainstream school, you need to learn know the language that you're being taught in. Um, and residential schools added a, were a compounding factor in language loss because there were specific policies in place uh, that prohibited children from speaking the only language they knew, which would be their Indigenous language in some cases. Um, and that's not to say that um, that type of idea about like native languages are bad and you have to speak English that existed in mainstream schooling as well and I, I was told stories about students who maybe didn't go to a residential school specifically but they were still punished if they were caught speaking their indigenous language um, and one story talked about a, a woman was in, the indigenous students had to scrub the floors of the gym every time they were um, you know caught speaking the language it was it was really bad it was very racist but yeah Oh, wow. So, I mean, on, on this, you know, trend of schools, um, 
I understand that the project you're working on is a collaboration with uh, the university here and with the communities there. Uh, can you talk about what sort of what this collaboration looks like? Like, what uh, are schools now, like Western, mm-hmm. doing to try to help? Um, Western's actually recently come out with uh, their Indigenous Strategic Plan, and there's a big section of that that focuses on collaboration and engagement um, with Indigenous communities, and that might. Um, be focusing on um, ensuring that Indigenous students have very adequate representation in the school or, you know, just encourage, making sure that there's space for these for these types of things to happen in the university. And I think that, um, like, my research especially focuses on, like, how can we create these relationships and foster these relationships uh, so that they work for the people that we want them to work for? How do we make sure that they're done in a way that is true to how Indigenous communities and Indigenous peoples understand the way that the world works? Yeah, you just uh, you're just about to get to my next question. So, like, uh, where does Hannah McGregor fit in all this? Like, what what kind of role have you played? What did you do in the in the course of your fieldwork? Um, one of the things that I was very involved in was a community language program called Dwadadi, which in Oneida means we will speak. Um, so, with them, I assisted a lot in helping them write grants to fund their programs. Um, so, to the federal government, they have a program run under their Department of Canadian Heritage, and um, just so that they can fund the things that they want to do. And I also sort of sat in on their meetings and we talked through class structure and how um, the language in the classroom should be delivered and how you get people speaking again. And with the knowledge that I have about like language education, I've attempted to help them structure a classroom environment that promotes speaking. And it's been a work in progress. Like we've been learning and making mistakes together. Um, it's, a, it's a long, hard process where you have to figure out what works and what doesn't. But um, we've been able to accomplish a lot, I think, so far. Can we hear some of like those kinds of achievements? Like what kind of stuff have you guys tried? Um, the, the biggest thing is ensuring that it's a full immersion environment and removing that reading and writing from the class, you know, because especially our, all of our education uh, relies so heavily on reading and writing. But when you're a baby and you're learning your language, you're not learning it through reading and writing. You don't know how to do that. Those things are taught to you later in formal education. And so when you're learning to speak again and you're doing it in a classroom environment, you need to start recreating um, a full language immersion space like you would have if you were an infant in an Oneida community, for example, even though these are adult learners. Um, so those types of things are what we've really been working towards. Okay, so that was you know leading into one of my questions. Um, you're talking about schools, but also adult learners. Uh, sort of what um, what's, what's your target demographic with these programs? When you say school, I'm thinking like you know like children, elementary yeah. school type things. But uh, are you running programs for adults as well? Yeah. So depending on the community goals and what resources you have, you can sort of choose what population you want to target. Like, who do you want to teach? In general, I think for uh, looking at language revitalization in the long term, um, what you want to sort of focus on is getting children to speak because children are the ones or the people who are going to carry the language forward. Um, But, you know, what we need to also do is educate adults in the language who can work and teach their own kids and provide spaces in the community where the language is useful. You know, because in a lot of cases, they don't need to use it in any particular capacity, so it's not used. So educating adults is an important step there, but the long-term goal should be educating kids as well, or just socializing them in the language and having that be their first language. Awesome. And so this work, this information you soaked up and all these lessons you learned, um, how are you going to then 
take it back and turn it into a thesis. <laughs> so like, uh, so like what kind of, um, be like, if you were to like, you know, box us into mm-hmm. uh, something like what kind of research questions you set out to answer and how do you, what do you come, what did you come back with? Um, I think after, after many hours of deliberation and thinking about everything, I, I think the way that I am structuring my work and want to structure it is how do we use language work specifically to enact re- reconciliation? And that sort of speaks to this national project that we've started with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which came out as a direct apology and response to um, the effects of the residential school system. So I want to talk about how can we collaborate um, on language projects in communities doing language revitalization and how does that enact reconciliation and how is that reconciliation for both indigenous and non-indigenous people? Now this is a really good question a really good uh, keyword to talk about so <laughs> yeah. we've heard uh, people out there listening on Radio Land have probably heard about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission yeah. if you're a little bit older you might remember there was also one in South Africa after apartheid so yeah. could we like talk about what is reconciliation? How does it happen? And what are what what are you doing in it? <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, wonderful question. It's also one that I asked of my participants and the people who agreed to do interviews with me. And you know, sort of predictably and non predicted and non predictably, you know, straight down the middle, the indigenous participants that I spoke to are very very hesitant about the concept of reconciliation. They're they don't get it. They don't like it. It's not in their language. It's the language of the government. Um, on the other hand, the non-Indigenous folks that I spoke to, they really buy into this concept of reconciliation. They want to make it happen. They want it to work because when you look at that you know, colonial history, a lot of people want to know what to do next. And for me, I think that we can marry these two understandings of reconciliation and language work is a really, really good place uh, to start talking about how we enact it because you're doing something for a group of people. Um, language is a really, really strong identity marker. And I think by bringing that back, um, you know, by actually the physical act of bringing it back is reconciliation for Indigenous people because they're gaining something that was taken from them. But it's also a space where non-Indigenous folks are are invited in many cases or some cases to participate. It's a thing that we can share and can work on together. So it sounds like in your interviews with Indigenous peoples, um, you said they were very, they're not really as much on board with this idea of reconciliation. Uh, what sort of things have been have they been talking about to you in regards to that? Um, so one woman, when I asked her that question, was just, you know, like, reconciliation is a farce. And I think uh, that's... It has a lot to do with the fact that the government is the perpetrator of a lot of these crimes, the government and the church and the residential school system, um, but also the fact that there have been significant pieces of legislation that I think most community members haven't felt has led to direct change. In 1996, there was a Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples that came out, and all the stuff that they talk about with language in the TRC, it was in that report too. It, this isn't new, you know. It's, it's new maybe for people who aren't familiar with the issues, but for Indigenous communities, they've been saying this like for a hundred years, and this came out in that report. And so I think that what they're really hesitant about is using a word and not having any actual follow through and direction that leads to recognizable change in their lives. You know, it's always the status quo that changes, even though we have these significant federal policies that come out and federal things, you know, that, that sort of stuff. Well, that must have been a very interesting place to be between those two kind of places. Yes. Yeah, it it was. And it's definitely my positionality as a non-Indigenous person is something that I had to 
I had to reflect a lot on about like what position do I want to occupy in this conversation? Where do I fit in? You know, I'm not an Indigenous community member, but I am very invested in these issues and I'm very invested in language revitalization. I somehow think that that's a thing that comes up a lot in anthropological circles. <laughs> how do you do field work? How do you watch people and not have the impact of you watching actually affect the things that you're seeing? Yeah, definitely. These are definitely conversations that have happened in the discipline and, you know, especially active anthropology or activist anthropology is something that um, a lot of, you know, my cohort and other people feel very passionate about. Um, and I think, you know, for me, I, I think I can write about language work in a way that speaks to, you know, how do we overcome those inherent power imbalances? You know, when in some cases, the way that I like to say it, like history has created the communities that we work with. Um, so, you know, I'm part of that history. So where do I fit in and how do I talk about these things? So you just mentioned um, this concept of activist anthropology. Is this a new um, sort of development in the field? And how does that sort of differ as compared to what, you know, might be considered classical anthropology? You know, people just going into villages and just seeing what happens kind of thing. Yeah, I, I definitely... Now, my, my theoretical knowledge is not so great. <laughs> um, you know, just, you know, what I've picked up in class. It's definitely a more recent development in the discipline, and it's definitely a response to anthropology's desire to navel-gaze in a lot of cases and reflect on its own position in where anthropologists and anthropology fits into, um, you know, working with communities and that sort of thing. So definitely something that's new. Yeah, a discipline writing lots and lots about how its own discipline works. That doesn't sound uh, very, <laughs> doesn't sound general, does it? Um, so you're also a human being, as far as I've heard. <laughs> Am I? Am I? <laughs> so what drive? What drove you to go down this route and become uh, an anthropologist? Um, well, I, I've always sort of had an interest in language. When I came to university and I did my undergrad at Western, I was sort of like, oh, maybe I'll do speech-language pathology. That's a career. Nobody can make fun of me if I go to university and plan to have a job after. Um, but then I, I just sort of uh, took a lot of anthropology classes and I met my you know, now supervisor and just got very interested in the social aspect of language and how people understand and feel about language. Um, and I actually, for one of my classes, I ended up doing an interview with Emmanuel Wacko, who's a, on my advisory committee as well. Um, and he's a Mohawk linguist who teaches that Oneida grammar course that I was talking about earlier. Uh, so he teaches that course as well. And I just got really interested in the things that were happening here. And then, of course, the TRC came out in 2015. And it's a very politically relevant topic at this point as well. So it just sort of all seemed to fit. Yeah, no worries about the economics thing. You're in a room with a media scholar, a historian, a library scientist. Uh, so you're you're in a good place. Although, you know, speaking of these uh, job prospects, are, what is your perspective on, you know, job prospects in this field? Would you like to continue working with uh, First Nations language programs and people? Yeah, that would be ideal. And I think uh, for me, I'm especially lucky at this point because the, the TRC came out, um, you know, so recently there is government money and programs and structure being funneled into these things. So I think spaces for the type of, you know, having, having a job the way that I'd like to do it, which would be supporting community efforts um, and the revitalization of their own languages is definitely something that's happening more and more. And, um, you know, I sort of follow different things on Facebook. Um, but, you know, 
I think there's also a lot of space to, you know, become involved in, you know, native organizations themselves and, you know, g- use the skills that you have and use uh, community connections to assist in those programs. Uh, there's definitely space for jobs and that kind of thing, but I would love to be able to do it professionally. Wouldn't we all? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, dream. I guess I have like uh, one or two uh, questions left to, to ask about. So one, is there, um, this is, a, this Oneida group lives fairly close to London. Yeah. Uh, but many, many Native communities live in very rural locations, sometimes literally in the Arctic. Yes. So how can this kind of work get um, exported and, like, you know, pushed into these kind of more rural areas? Or is there even, like, a sharp divide mm-hmm. between sort of uh, local, like, uh, urban-adjacent groups versus, like, very um, – remote ones that is a really good question and it's it's definitely something that you know needs to frame the type of work that i do for example um like there are three indigenous communities located very very close to london there's muncie delaware there's chippewa of the thames and then there's the united of the thames um so you know they have the added benefit of being close to a major research institution it's not hard for me to you know drive 20 minutes southwest of London and go to that community, sit in on their meetings. But how do you support a researcher who wants to do that with a community that is no lo- like not located anywhere near a university? And I think um, those problems of geography are something that um, need to be taken into consideration if you're looking at developing these collaborative programs, but they also shouldn't be something that we say, oh no, we can't do it. It's another problem to work around, but hopefully there, we find a way to deal with it in a way that works for everybody. Well, so sort of along those lines, um, one, I guess, problem that I've had in mind is this notion that we often talk about, you know, First Nations people as if they were, you know, like one people, one group, one culture sort of thing. And I mean, clearly they're not. No. Even just in the lo- local London area, you listed three different groups of people. Yes. Um, I was wondering, though, so being that, you know, this 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 view might be so prevalent, um, how sort of transferable would some of the work you're doing now with the Oneida uh, community mm-hmm. be? Uh, like, what can we learn from your work, and is there anything we can apply to um, other First Nations groups in terms of language um, revitalization? Yeah, I definitely think that it's it's always really important to maintain the fact that there are uh, 60 different indigenous languages still, and they all belong to a different nation of people. And that idea of nationhood and independence is really, really important in these communities. Um, but at the same time, the um, social situation of these communities is a pretty each community will be different but there are a lot of similarities that you can draw you know by if we're looking at remote communities versus urban communities or urban adjacent communities or you know indigenous peoples within a city um, those types of similarities based on geography and access to resources and the types of resources resources that they have uh, those similarities can be drawn but always maintaining or always acknowledging the fact that there are people from different nations and that doesn't mean that all indigenous peoples are the same is a really important important thing to keep in mind hmm. so if i wanted to follow along on all this <laughs> say if i was you know uh listening to this radio yeah. show right now and wanted to read up as much of this or follow along with the work you're doing yeah. is there some places we can go to find out what um what's going on in the world of language revitalization or specifically your work um well there's definitely a lot of 
community-based work that has sort of been put on the internet about um, the things that they're doing. And there's definitely a lot of like little nice YouTube videos you can watch where uh, people talk about what their language means to them and how they feel about learning it and how they feel about the past. And I think that watching, even just watching those, like going into a YouTube hole and watching those videos and listening to what people tell you um, is a really good way to maybe sort of begin to understand how other people experience the world. Um, and then um, in terms of my own work, I, I don't know, maybe I should do more interviews. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but get a Twitter. Um, yeah, maybe get a Twitter just for this. Um, but yeah, like just checking the London Free Press, there's usually a fair bit of stuff about the London Free Press. And I know that my main community contact has done a little bit of work and has been interviewed by the CBC, for example. I think it's really just about, you know, putting in those Google key terms, but, you know, also just taking a look at what else is going on, maybe even just not in Canada, but in the United States as well. I guess um, we're coming up to the very end here. Uh, Is there sort of like a takeaway that you would like to leave listeners with in in terms of your project? Um, I, I think that's a, really, that's a good question. Um, I think maybe in terms of my project, just maybe um, realizing or thinking about the fact that reconciliation, I think, in the eyes of a lot of the people that I talk to is just a word. And the next step, if you want to be involved in this and you want to do something that's involving reconciliation is... It's about taking actionable steps and doing something that I think makes a difference for certain people. And if you you need to ask, you need to be willing to learn and you need to maybe even go and try and establish a community connection and, um, you know, become involved in these projects. Because there's a lot of people who maybe don't want any external support for anything, but there's also quite a few people who I've met that want to sort of develop these partnerships and collaborative relationships and work towards uh, doing something differently now. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for coming in today and telling us the story. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a great time. It's really great. So for you guys out there, uh, GradCast is one, as I said, a production of the Society of Graduate Students. But if you're a graduate student at Western, you can, just like Hannah, come on the radio and talk about your idea. Hopefully it was a good experience. It was a really good experience. Thanks, guys. <laughs> and it's a great line for your CV. So if you are interested in coming on this show, we have openings as early as, uh, I think, May. You can go to gradcastradio at gmail.com, send us a little email, and we'll book you a time. And, of course, have a great week. We're, we're apparently experiencing April and February, so have a good one. Broken and